Hello all! Sorry this episode is a bit later than our usual bi-weekly schedule. We realised partway through recording that Claire's audio was being recorded through her headphones, so there was a bit more editing to do than usual. She sounds a little muffled, so apologies for that, but I think we had a great discussion about West Side Story, and we are looking forward to talking about Dune Part 2 in our next episode. Okay, on with the show! Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. Um, my name is Claire Biddles and this is my co-host and regular host, Gabby Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week we're discussing Steven Spielberg's 2021 remake of West Side Story, which is one of my favourite films, which is why I'm doing this introduction. Uh, set in 1950s Manhattan, uh, this musical take on Romeo and Juliet tells the story of Tony and Maria, who are star-crossed lovers caught in the turf war between two Upper West Side gangs, the White Jets and the Puerto Rican Sharks. So before we go any further, there's like a little ethical preamble. Your mileage may vary on this film because it is one of the many widely regarded masterpieces that also has a kind of dark side in the sense that one of the lead actors has been accused of sexual assault, which is, of course, lead actor Ansel Elgort. The way we fall on it is... I'm very much opposed to giving future work to people after this kind of uh, accusation comes forward. But like that happened after this film was made. It was something that kind of came out during the promo process in 2020. There was a lot of discussion at the time about how, you know, other members of the cast had to go on a press tour with him and so forth. So it's like a bit of a more complicated issue than, for instance, reviewing a new Johnny Depp movie, which we would definitely not be doing. So yeah, that's just kind of to let you know where we stand on that issue. There's unfortunately quite a lot of films in this position, but um, I'm comfortable with discussing that in the context that it exists in. So yeah, without any further ado in that department, let's talk about the film itself, which as Claire just said, is one of her favourite films ever. She's watched many times. I watched (laughs) for the first time this morning and um, did indeed think it was absolutely incredible, like an example of really old school movie musical filmmaking of a type that basically hasn't been done since the 20th century. The cinematography, the choreography, all stunning. Obviously, we do have some political critiques that kind of are baked into the basic concept of West Side Story (laughs) as a piece of uh, American race fiction. But yeah, uh, Claire, do you want to give us some background on uh, West Side Story itself? Absolutely. So this is the second film which is based on the musical... Uh, West Side Story, which was originally written in 1957 uh, with music by Leonard Bernstein and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, who is a big fave of mine. The musical itself is based on Romeo and Juliet, so you'll see this kind of similar themes of warring factions and star-crossed lovers. The first film, uh, which is really famous, was released in 1961, so quite soon after the original stage musical. Directed by Robert Wise, who also did The Sound of Music, and uh, Jerome Robbins, and it won 10 Oscars. So it's still the musical with the most Oscar wins of all time. The original is like very beloved still, and when this came out, uh, when there were kind of first rumblings of this being adapted by Steven Spielberg, it was one of those remakes where, even though it's kind of not really a remake of the film, it's closer actually to the original musical. It was one of those where everybody was like, well, why do we need this? Why do we need a remake of West Side Story? Because it's like the original is so beloved and such an incredible film. But the way that it worked out, I always think with this version of West Side Story, it's like 
the ultimate it did not have to go this hard film because nobody expected it to be this good. But it's a long time passion project of Steven Spielberg and um, I always think it's not very surprising that he made this and the Fablemans kind of back to back because it was a really big family favourite of his when he was a kid. It was the first like popular music that he heard in his household and he kind of had always wanted to make it. There's a quote from him from like one of the uh, kind of making of featurettes on the physical release of the film that says, I've been challenged by what would be the right musical to take on and I could never forget my childhood. I was 10 years old when I first listened to West Side Story and it never went away. I've been able to fulfill that dream and keep that promise that I made to myself. You must make West Side Story. So it feels like a very like fulfillment of a kind of lifelong dream for him. And for the film, he worked with Tony Kushner, who's a playwright who's probably best known for uh, Angels in America. The iconic Tony Kushner. (laughs) (laughs) The iconic Tony Kushner. It's a really interesting screenplay, I think. I think it's, I mean, I think it should have won most of the Oscars it was nominated for, but I think it should have definitely won adapted screenplay because it's a real masterpiece of adaptation. It takes a more similar format to the stage show. So the songs are in the same order as the stage show and it's kind of has them in the same context as the stage show, but it also fleshes out the character backstories. Um, So Tony, who's, well, he's still like a white bread character, but he's given this backstory where he kind of like gets put in prison and and comes back and and then Riff's character played by Mike Feist who's like the gang leader of the Jets is kind of given this extra characterization and there's also an added context of uh, slum clearances which happened at the time Um, so it's set in the titular west side and the characters are all poverty-stricken people of various different nationalities and backgrounds who are living in slums that are being uh, knocked down to basically to build the Lincoln Center and to build posh housing around the Lincoln Center. So it's about the gentrification of that area as well. And quite interestingly, I thought the film had its premiere, the world premiere at Lincoln Center, which I thought was quite kind of like ironic in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. It makes sense to me kind of, not in a positive way, but it makes sense to me that it didn't receive that recognition for the screenplay because I think you have to really be quite familiar with the previous versions to know to what extent the screenplay, I guess, exists as a separate entity because Mm -hmm. I watched the original 1961 film many years ago and have extremely limited memories of it. (laughs) And obviously the songs I'm very familiar with. And the thing that people are, of course, most familiar with is the songs, partly because they're iconic and partly that's how the human brain works. Like you remember tunes. And they're kind of part of like the ambient pop culture of everywhere. (laughs) So when you watch this film, I feel like a lot of people are maybe not going to pick up on changes And as we know, the Academy is not necessarily made up of the type of experts we would like it to be. So I think people are not really going to think, did the screenwriter do anything? Because they don't know that basically the the songs and the script are separate entities. They might Mm -hmm. be like, oh, it's got, they've reordered something a little bit, but they don't understand that it was an original adaptation, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also like a, a real music, musical nerd thing as well, where like maybe... People just in general don't specifically think about 
the book being written by somebody different than the person who writes the lyrics or something. So it's like, that's also another another element of it. Before we get into the kind of nitty gritty of the film, I'll maybe say a little bit about the release, which was really strange and fucked up by COVID. So <laughs> it was kind of like originally supposed to be released in 2020. And like many things was delayed and delayed and delayed. The kind of ethical situation with Ansel Elgort was also what happened in the interim of that. So, and it overlapped with Spider Man. Overlapped with Spider Man. <laughs> so, and- like the market, there was like so much kind of like coverage of the the way this was kind of mismanaged and also hamstrung by COVID because yeah. it came out at the same time as Spider Man, which meant that it lost the youth audience and it was sort of marketed not really very well towards young people and then the resulting audience skewed relatively old which is always an undesirable thing for studios even mm. though that's like absurd but on a purely numbers basis this movie was a bomb like it yeah. was it was a huge flop even though the critics were like it's incredible yeah <laughs> and as well as being released at the same time as spider-man it was also released when omicron hit do you remember omicron yeah. And I got Omicron immediately, which meant that I got to see this film when it was in cinemas. But there weren't very many other people who were going to see it. How many times did you see it in theatres, Claire? I saw it four times in theatres. Normal number. Normal number of times. I basically saw it every week in January 2022. And then when it stopped being at the cinema, I was really bereft. (laughs) Because I couldn't go and see it again. Yeah, I was just truly under its spell. (laughs) so i think we should talk a bit about the cast because that was also something that played into the promo because they couldn't really be like here's a megastar because not only does ansel elgort cast a pall over this operation he's not like really a name that has much draw (laughs) and the female lead is of course rachel zegler this was her first role absolutely incredible i have seen her as well in the hunger games she does have like a pretty specific type of character that she plays and quite specific like you can see why she immediately got cast as a Disney princess because that's Mm -hmm. very much her vibe but um she is good at that and she's obviously an amazing singer and then a lot of the rest of the cast is kind of Broadway adjacent slash character actors for very obvious reasons because like you need people who have the dancing and singing chops Mm -hmm. which is one of the many problems with a lot of other recent movie musicals where they they have people who can't <laughs> definitely can't dance and often can't sing um and when they do have someone like Hugh Jackman who can dance and sing it's then filmed by someone who doesn't know how to film <laughs> movie musicals so it's like everything is always a deeply catastrophic operation but here you know we have this slew of people who are very much of the kind of triple threat movie musical Broadway amazing dancing you know Ariana DeBose as Anita is kind of the third or fourth most important character I mean, she basically won her Oscar off the back of having this absolutely incredible song and dance sequence. Um, She's also giving a really impressive dramatic performance, but like Mm. she just is so visually memorable as a dancer in these really famous songs. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing. It's like, it's about the triple threat. It's about how it all comes together. And I think that's another reason why it's easy to talk about this film without really talking about Ansel Elgort because, or without having to talk about Ansel Elgort because He's so plain in the middle of this all. And like, he's okay at singing that, I suppose. But like, he's so plain in the middle of this all. That is not the thing that you focus on. He's not a very charismatic actor, but also it's the least interesting role in the music. It's like famously the least interesting role. (laughs) And even when I was watching it now, knowing that, 
ahead of time because it's kind of the most famous thing about West Side Story is that like the leads are not very interesting and the male mm-hmm. lead specifically is a block of wood. Even watching it, I was just like, wow, it's great that this is so much about the supporting cast because of course yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's Romeo and Juliet. Mercutio is always the most exciting yes. role, even though that play is far more focused on like the main couple than this yeah. is. But it's like you have this very sort of sweet and innocent romance in the centre and then all of the side characters have much bigger personalities mm-hmm. and they all have like really punchy songs you know when you get to the point where they do like the G Officer Krupke sequence I was like ah. I've completely forgotten this was in it and it's like such a fucking <laughs> great song and it's like five of the gangsters whose names you don't even remember unless you're a musical person <laughs> it's like such a character actor film but specifically Broadway musical character actor film because even the people who have got like two lines in one song are so memorable and and work so well as part of the cast and part of the ensemble. Yeah, it's very much kind of in the in the vein of like almost a lot of ballets and older yeah. operas rather than a Broadway show that's designed around two or three stars in a chorus because mm-hmm. it's like you have these individual sequences where there's like a ton of work going into it. Like, mm-hmm. as in labour on stage, which makes sense if you're performing it every night, because, like, yeah. you can do this incredibly energetic show, and it's not one workhorse having to do it for three hours. It's, you know, they're they're passing the load around, so it's always loads of energy, like, throughout the performance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Another kind of headline about the casting, which, again, is more of a headline if you like musicals in the original film than for general audiences. But it's that Rita Moreno, who has an EGOT, who played Anita in the original film, so played Ariana DeBose's character, who is the kind of sister-in-law of Maria, the kind of older girl character and the kind of shark side. So she's the older Puerto Rican girl who sings America, which is the sequence that Gav was just mentioning. So Rita Moreno played her originally and won an Oscar for it. And she is back in the film playing an older Puerto Rican woman who kind of takes Tony under her wing and she kind of like knows all of the kids. She like has a shop in the neighborhood and all the kids are kind of coming in and out and she knows them all, but she's kind of the wiser, older person who's not yeah. getting involved. And she she talks about like how she married um, a white guy but she kind of says, oh, I married a gringo and they think that makes me a gringa, but but I ain't. And it's like kind of, there's a wider conversation about that. But it's interesting how the script kind of acknowledges the kind of nuances of how these communities interact with each other and how even the people who are like against this turf war between these gangs are still like, well, it's still complicated. Yeah, and it's like, I get the impression, right, that it was, um for this adaptation, they kind of swapped her in for a male role that would have yeah. been her husband in the yeah, original. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of her casting, most listeners will probably know, but part of the reason why she's such an iconic figure from the original is, like, her performance is amazing. Rita Marino is this Hollywood industry legend, and also the vast majority of the roles in that 1961 movie were whitewashed. So Mm -hmm. she was the only Latina actor in that cast of people who were white actors playing Puerto Ricans. And, you know, obviously this movie kind of alters that, but there was still kind of quite a lot of criticism about the idea of basically casting anyone who was perceived as Hispanic or Latin in all of the Puerto Rican roles rather Mm -hmm. than casting, you know, a Puerto Rican actor Mm -hmm. as Maria. Um, Mm -hmm. We will get into that later. But yeah, like obviously Rita Moreno is kind of the aging 
legend role she's got the kind of (laughs) ian mckellen role of this movie and then everyone else is these sort of young 20 and 30 something broadway people including mike feist (sighs) so when i sent gav the notes for this uh, episode. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, but am I sorry that there is an entire Mike Feist section and I'm going to have to talk about Mike Feist for a long time because I love him so much. My love for West Side Story 2021 is truly intertwined with my love for Mike Feist, which they both happened instantaneously at the same time. So he plays Riff, who's played by Russ Tamblin from Twin Peaks in the original West Side Story. And uh, Riff is the Mercutio character, basically. So he is the uh, best friend of Tony, the gang leader of the Jets, a tragic, romantic, nihilistic figure. And I just think that it's one of my favourite performances. Like, obviously, I deeply love and fancy Mike Feist, so I'm biased, but I just think that it is one of the best performances of, like, the last, like, 10, 20 years. I mean, the amount of buzz he got around this. Yeah, seriously. Because, I mean, he's he's 32, right? He has yeah. had a, no, over a decade doing kind of stage work, but a lot of people did have the same reaction is you like you look at the reviews for this movie and they're just like Mike Feist is a superstar his screen presence is incredible and also it's always just really exciting to see someone who's a really good dancer and has loads of physicality going on because we are currently in this sort of era of no new movie stars yeah and no musicals that kind of understand what to do as we have already mentioned (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly he had a really interesting career I think and I think we'll continue to have a really interesting career he's coming up in both the bike riders film which me and Gav were just saying is probably going to be my favorite three-star film five-star experience of this year just a load of boys on bikes and the Luke Guadagnino challenges kind of romantic threesome Zendaya Josh O'Connor film so I think he's going to continue to have a really interesting career but before this he was kind of a jobbing actor on the stage he was in Newsies the unionizing newsboys musical and he was in Dear Heaven Hansen for ages mandatory every everyone has to be it's like you have to go and do your community service in Dear Evan Hansen yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was nominated for a Tony Award for his performance in Dear Evan Hansen. The reason why I think that he's going to make continue to make good choices is because he turned down the Dear Evan Hansen movie. He was yeah. like, I've finished that. And, you know, famously, like, the main Wise. guy. Was also, like, he probably was like, I no longer look like a teenager, unlike yeah. the main guy who was like, let's <laughs> let's pop me in there. I can definitely pass for 16. And I then the whole thing teen. was a fucking laughing stock. <laughs> So I can imagine Mike Feist just being like, I fucking did the right thing. But he's like, if you read interviews with him, and we'll put some in the show notes, he's my favourite kind of character actor who is also kind of a movie star. So he's like very intense, takes himself seriously, but also not too seriously. He's a James Dean. He's a James Dean. He's a Heath Ledger. He's in that kind of lineage. I mean, when I was reading interviews with a costume designer, he was talking about you know, obviously he collaborated a lot with the actors to kind of build the character's looks. And Mike Feist was the one who was the most intense. So he was like, mm. get me like this particular kind of necklace, not in a like demanding way, but being like, get me this necklace. So I want to have this backstory from my mother who is not a character, by the way, because he wants this implication that his mother was like an addict and he'd have this necklace to like remember her by and stuff. So clearly very, very into like building his character. And it shows on screen because it's an incredibly 
strong performance. And as I mentioned, like the Mercutio is always the the big fun role that you want in this story. Mm-hmm. And that's what he gets. He's just like, he's so punchy. There's this great quote that you got, uh, that you've put in this <laughs> magnificent document. Claire, by the way, organized all of this episode, because as I said, I watched this today and then did some research, but she has spent the past like two years reading <laughs> dozens and dozens of articles about this and could probably do a presentation about it. You should you should consider that, do a little uh, PowerPoint lecture yeah. at some event somewhere. But um, yeah. in this New York Times article about Mike Feist, there is what Claire described as a nice example of method acting. The only um, nice which is example. How, yeah. So it's him talking about how he got the other actors who are playing the Jets, the gang of white boys, and kind of got them to like bond before filming. And he said, I felt it was my personal obligation that we become a tribe. After the first day of rehearsal, we all went out to the bar down the street. I handed out assignments, the jetivities is what we called them. And no matter what it was, we all had to do it. We did a whole bunch of shenanigans that summer. We went to upstate New York and bought a full arsenal of Nerf guns. There's video of us setting up this relay race in a house, having to shoot all these red plastic solo cups from different angles. We played laser tag once. I wanted them to feel like they were part of something bigger. That way, when the cameras rolled, they were just there. And um, that's delightful. And it's also so indicative of athletes and dancers, because like, if you've ever like spent any time around athletes and dancers, when they're not doing their main job, they have so much fucking energy. (laughs) So these guys are probably like, you know, chugging protein shakes and then being like, we need to do our daily enrichment in the paddock. And uh, he has accurately figured out that what they need to be doing is running around shooting things and like knocking solo cops off the frat house. And it's very delightful. And we should kind of start talking about the actual film itself now, but like just the the introductory sequence of this movie, I was just like oh blown God. away. I was like, I can first of all, I can see why Claire loves this, and secondly, <laughs> the energy of the young men is something that Steven Spielberg just like understands so deeply and transmits so clearly within the first couple of minutes of the film because it opens up with this big, clangingly metaphorical shot of this wrecking ball that's about to knock down the neighborhood um, for gentrification purposes. And then you see the lads of the Jets in this yard. And they, for their first sequence, like Mike Feist's character, Riff, is being canoodling with his girlfriend in a shed and the rest are stealing jars of paint that they're going to use to vandalize a Puerto Rican flag elsewhere in the city. But like their first kind of dance where they're going to swagger out through into the streets opens with them kicking down a men working sign. And I was just like, this is delightful. And they have this incredibly strong kind of young posturing masculine energy that is so real for when you see like, you know, not like gang gang, but like gangs of 20 year old boys Mm -hmm. out in the street who like are really into what they're wearing and are really showing off for each other. And this whole film throughout, like one of the through lines is the idea of these men caring far more about the men in their lives, their brothers and their enemies than they do about the women. Because like most of the women are kind of like, can you stop fighting? (laughs) And the men are like, I would rather be going and having this pointless racial dispute with the other enemy gang than going to a dance, right? And and Riff is like one of the main instigators of this. It's like Riff is the leader of the Jets. Bernardo, played by David Alvarez, is the leader of the 
sharks. He is one of the many Billy Elliots. So uh, another <laughs> another stage musical I guy. Know that. That's amazing. Yeah, he's of he's one of the <laughs> like Tom Holland. He came up through the school of Billy Elliot. Much respect to that genuinely very challenging role for a child. Um, <laughs> And so it's like you have this amazing body language and like the costuming really kicks off very early on because they're all dressed in that sort of 1950s, slightly greaser adjacent look. So they've got these like blue jeans, tight t-shirts with the sleeves rolled up or high-waisted trousers. So like in interviews with the costume designer, Paul Tazewell, who also did the stage musical Hamilton, which he got a Tony Award for. This this thing is all like very heavy hitters creative-wise. Um, but he was kind of talking about like for the color palettes of the two gangs, um, the white guys have the sort of grey blue color palette that's meant to be more to do with like New York geography, New York architecture, kind of the the trashed landscape, that sort of thing. And then the Puerto Rican gang, the Sharks, has a bolder color palette that's more tropical and also their dress styles are very different because like the Puerto Rican guys are dressing more aspirationally. They have jobs, they're trying to look smart, they wear like nice shirts and stuff. And then the white guys are a lot trashier and like Everyone here is poor, but the white guys are clearly like they've got a lot more time in their hands. A lot of them aren't employed, Mm -hmm. which is one of the kind of tensions throughout the film. It's like this classic racism against the new coming immigrant population situation, which is like the the whole animus of the entire story. (laughs) But like the Puerto Rican gang outfits are just like they're so gorgeous. It's these high waisted 1950s trousers that are like really tight and then shirts and like sweater vests on top. And it also is so familiar if you've watched a lot of modern dance, not modern dance like in the colloquial sense, as in the actual subgenre of modern dance that originated in the mid 20th century, because a lot of it is kind of danced in that type of outfit because you can make stretchy high-waisted pants that look, look really sexy, but they look like a real casual outfit from that period. You know, I've seen that so many times on stage and you see it a lot from movie musicals from like the 30s to 50s. And that's what you're watching here. I was like, here they are, <laughs> these gorgeous <laughs> outfits. And I was also like, I really need to get like me some of those. I want to oh, have like damn. a nice pair. Because I've got some sort of high-waisted trousers like that, but I need to get the, you know, like the shirts with the little rolled yeah, up sleeves, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. which is such a look. It's a bit of a fuckboy look, but that's kind of the point of the, that's <laughs> that's the, the point. point of the situation. <laughs> um, but these guys, the way they're riffing off each other, uh, to, to use a horrendous pun there, is the vibes are absolutely immaculate. They have this perfect energy and it really comes through in this long prologue sequence and then later on in the fights, which are choreographed really violently, as you would expect from Spielberg, who like knows how to bring that sort of energy in an action scene. And also in the Officer Krupke sequence, which is so funny. I was just, I was dying in the Officer <laughs> Krupke song. <laughs> it's, so just, it's such a funny song. <laughs> it's so funny. And it's one of those sequences where it's so elegantly done and elegantly choreographed. And you're just watching it with your mouth wide. Like, whoa. <laughs> it's just, it's so mobile. I mean, for people yeah. who, I'm assuming a lot of people will watch this, but like, who knows? The Officer Krupke song is the one where basically a bunch of the Jets have been arrested and they're kind of waiting to be booked by the local low-quality cop, <laughs> Officer Krupke. <laughs> and they sing this song satirising the way that 
more privileged people talk about young men and gangs. So they're kind of talking about how they're going to talk their way out of this by saying that they're underprivileged and they're tragic and their parents are addicts. And then they cycle through all of the different excuses that people give to explain the behavior of young delinquents until they end up just <laughs> going back to the beginning and being like, just throw us in jail. And it's it's just so, so funny. It's so funny. <laughs> and it's an amazing showcase for these actors who are very tertiary roles you know like I said it's like they're essentially chorus members in this musical like people who are essentially chorus members all have names like they're very distinctive but it's just so thoughtful and well put together in that regard Mm -hmm. yeah because Riff isn't even in that sequence it's like the rest of the Jets and yeah it feels like really central even though like you said it's it's all these kind of chorus members essentially another thing that that sequence and and the opening sequence as well I think really demonstrate is like something I really love about the film which is how it balances the kind of elegance of the dancing and the genuine violence like you were talking about and that's like in the way that the fights and the dances are all choreographed with the same attention to sweeping moves of the dancing but also the like genuine like gnarliness of the fighting and the way that I mean this you could do a whole podcast about like masculinity in this film but it really speaks to something that I really love about when you get films with a big gang of boys in which is my favorite genre I just saw the iron claw and I think that does it really well as well the the way that the boys are with each other the kind of gentleness is contrast with the way that they're lashing out into the world and into themselves there's a kind of nihilism and a kind of hatred of outsiders and a hatred of the self but then there's this love of each other and like you were saying they this ridiculous thing of how they don't want to go out and meet girls at a dance they want to like have these silly fights yeah and that's like the main point of contention with tony the male lead because the way this film positions him is that he has already you know he's got this past where he was heavily involved in the gang and Riff is his best friend, mm-hmm. but he almost killed someone from another gang in this fight a couple of years ago and was sent to jail. And this really kind of turned him around. And he's like, I don't want to be involved in this anymore. I want to have a steady life. So he's got this job working in the drugstore with Rita Moreno. And because his priorities have shifted, that means that the most important relationships in his life are no longer about this kind of male bonding desperation situation. Because mm-hmm. like the reason why this gang exists in the first place is as they explain in the Officer Krupke song, it's like they have no other hope. Mm -hmm. Their entire motivation in life is to fight people who they think are trying to take over their territory. When Mm -hmm. in reality, we know that it's like a development company that's trashing their neighborhood. And the fact that there is a Puerto Rican community have moved in nearby is, you can't like point the finger at those guys. Yeah, that's almost acknowledged straight away in the dialogue as well, because there's a bit where the police are kind of saying to them, or the development company blah 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 and and riff is like i thought it was the puerto ricans who were causing these problems for us you've got to get your story straight we're very impressionable (laughs) i like how it kind of acknowledges that as well that they're yeah there's all these kind of complex things going on yeah and it's like even though bernardo has this really deep long-term relationship with anita ariana debose's character there is a lot of conflict between them in terms of like his activities, like fighting with the other gang and stuff. And she's like, she wants him to be more safe. Riff's girlfriend is a lot more of a minor character. But Tony, because of his experiences, because his priorities are shifted, that gives him this kind of freedom to fall in love with someone. And obviously that's his downfall because this is Romeo and Juliet. But like 
he and Maria meeting and falling in love is the whole story is positioning like love versus violence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a in a very sort of high school essay analysis yeah. <laughs> way to describe it but um it's not meant to be complex this is a musical which is eternally beloved for all of its uh, <laughs> dubious political flaws in some ways <laughs> speaking of dubious political flaws there's another kind of quote that i wanted to read from a writer for the cut called andrea gonzalez ramirez who was one of the um, Latinx critics and filmmakers who were kind of critiquing the film, mainly because it was kind of the gist of a lot of arguments was like, why are we doing this again? Why are we positioning West Side Story as a kind of Latinx story? You know, it's again being made by people who aren't Latinx. And also it's like kind of a rerun of something that was quite contentious for a while and she's kind of getting at that whilst the jets are humanized quite a lot and they have this g officer key sequence and there's kind of a lot of other kind of tenderness between them that's shown the men of the sharks don't get a sort of similar scene and they don't necessarily get the same humanizing treatment so she's saying no matter how much authenticity you try to bring to west side story the story requires that puerto ricans ultimately be the antagonists the Sharks never have a chance to be somewhat humanised in the way G. Officer Krupke does for the Jets. It's Bernardo who opposes Maria and Tony's relationship and who first becomes a killer. It's Anita who lies after the Jets try to rape her, leading to Tony's death. It's Chino who pulls the trigger and kills Tony in revenge. And obviously we're going into spoiler territory here, but yeah. spoilers for Romeo and Juliet. So I think we all kind of... Yeah, but- and I think that's so true because like the film, I think, makes it very clear in a kind of explicit political sense, it like emphasizes the racism of the white characters and is mm-hmm. just makes it extremely transparently clear that like their views are wrong and the kind of how it represents immigration conflicts since time immemorial. Yeah. But from a narrative structure perspective, this critique is so right because yeah. you don't get that level of depth from the Puerto Rican characters outside of Anita and Maria, really. Like, obviously, mm. Bernardo was very present, but, like, mm. we don't know him as well as Riff. Like, Riff is yeah. the big star character. And, yeah, of course, they don't have the G-Officer Krupke part, as she points out. <laughs> yeah. There's another um, quote that I'll read out from Francis Negron Montana, who's um, a Puerto Rican filmmaker, and in the Washington Post is writing... Um, I wouldn't say that nobody should ever go to that source material or those lyrics or that choreography or that story and not try to do something else with it. But it's hard to think that this is still what we're talking about and that there are not a greater range of voices and stories told. And I think that that's the crux of kind of a lot of arguments from Latinx critics of the film. Although it's funny that one of them, that somebody brought up In the Heights, the um, Lin-Manuel Miranda musical, which was also kind of fucked by COVID, I think, the release. And we're like, yeah, we need other like Latinx stories by Latinx filmmakers, but not this one. <laughs> so I thought that was quite funny. Um, yeah, I didn't watch yeah. that movie. I remember a lot of people loved it, but like a couple of people who are film critics were like, this definitely suffers from modern musical disease and that yeah. it's shot by someone who, who's no good at shooting dance sequences. But it's sort of like, one must accept that to a certain degree because most people can't do it. I mean, yeah. the thing about like, the discussion of like, should we adapt stories like this? Is it's just going to go around in circles forever? Yeah, and I yeah, think, and, it, and it's always a kind of fruitful discussion because 
each example is kind of different and there's stuff like West Side Story or like Porgy and Bess get restaged in very different ways and you can say the same of you know Shakespeare like stuff that's been around for hundreds of years there's ways to kind of revitalize them and in this particular case the the reason why we're getting a remake of West Side Story is specifically because Steven Spielberg himself wanted to do it Mm -hmm. and has the clout to remake it and has the clout to get literally everybody in place who is the best person at that yeah. thing to do. <laughs> so it's it's simultaneously this absolute masterpiece from a technical perspective. He's doing his best to be more ethical about the casting choices and like racial representation than the original version, but it's still like a white, like 70-year-old guy as the director and as the writer. (laughs) And there's quite a lot of very valid criticism around all of it, including the original text. I mean, one thing that I remember when the film first came out was like a Puerto Rican person I follow on Twitter or something was just like the fact that the most famous song in the world about Puerto Rico is this song which is all about like oh everyone has too many kids and it stinks here is just like incredibly offensive and upsetting like it's just like that is the iconic song and it's like yeah "Yeah, of course you'd be like fucking pissed off if this is this like horrible and obviously like the point of that song technically speaking is people having a disagreement over their homes and like there's poverty in both locations but the reality is that that's the iconic song and it's pretty gross in tone (laughs) it's saying i don't want to be in puerto rico (laughs) some of the lyrics for that were changed as well for this one so it's like kind of another one of those things where it's been shifted a little bit but also that um performance of america is like one of the i'd say one of the kind of like major set pieces of the film that i like the most impressive and the things it's gorgeous the parts where every single element kind of comes together to become this miraculous thing i rewatched it again last night and i've watched it redacted a number of times but it yeah. just i mean the large-scale dance numbers are just so stunning it's like that and the gym sequence got oh a lot of God, attention at the time yeah. one of the many articles you linked to me today was kind of a breakdown of the stuff they did for the gym sequence which is this big dance in the first act where Maria and Tony meet for the first time and you have both communities there it's like all the young people in this big 50s dance and they're divided but the way it's shot is just so impressive and like just watching it you're obviously gobsmacked and then it's one of these things where you hear more about the technical process and you're just like what the fuck because <laughs> it opens with this extensive long shot I think it was like a couple of shots stuck together but it looks like a kind of five minute long shot that kind of follows people through the corridor into this big gym where the dance is taking place and then the camera is sort of flying over them and between the dancers and you're seeing all the choreography so close and so clearly and like the timing is perfect but the way they filmed this was so technically sophisticated because obviously first of all you have to have all the dancers performing this straight for a long period of time, which is something you can only do if you have trained Broadway dancers as your (laughs) entire cast. But also they had this sort of lighting rig where half the lights had to be dimmed at certain times when the camera wasn't pointing at them. So you would have the lighting emphasis on the right places to draw the eye and to have emotional emphasis and stuff, which is so complicated. And one of those things that you have to be an extremely practiced and skilled director to understand why to do that and how mm-hmm. and this like period of Spielberg's career you know the the final act not to be morbid but like he's very <laughs> old like he and and Scorsese are both churning out these absolute masterpieces mm-hmm. in their old age and like mm-hmm. obviously Scorsese has always been taken very seriously and is now considered like this 
titan of American cinema. And one of the sort of conversations around Spielberg now is the idea that he's almost underrated, which I think is something Morgan and I discussed when The Fablemans came out. I've not Mm -hmm. actually seen it yet, but I do want to see The Fablemans. Which is because he's like kind of known for a lot of blockbusters, people don't necessarily take him as seriously artistically, even though like he is obviously very well regarded because he's Steven Spielberg, but it's like no one is doing it like him. You know, he's one of these people who can see in three dimensions to this tremendous scale. And when you kind of read about the way he was going through the rehearsal process, he'd be like watching all of these dance sequences rehearse and then using his cell phone camera to see which angles to use (laughs) and then being able to extrapolate it into this like hugely complex thing with a bunch of like lighting robots and stuff. And it's like, you are making something that is so good and so many movies right now are so bad on a technical level because we don't have that (laughs) pipeline of directors being able to learn at scale. Because the main problem, as we've discussed a million tedious times before, is like many people can make an incredible small indie film because like it requires a certain amount of education, but not like a vast amount of expertise. Obviously more expertise than we can do, but like, you know what I mean. And then they'll get hired to do some blockbuster and it's like, no, you have to learn like dozens of other skills to make this look good. Mm -hmm. Like you need to have to understand the stuff about the lighting rig. Mm -hmm. And that's what you've got here. Mm -hmm. Plus the affection and knowledge about periods of film history that are like way before most of the cast were even born. Because like, we have lost the knowledge of how to make this style of musical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right to bring up the conversations about him being underrated because I think people, until quite recently, maybe the last sort of 15, 20 years, people took these kind of filmmakers for granted. And it's kind of like, don't know what you got till it's gone kind of thing, where you only realise now when we're seeing things where people have been kind of rushed to make you know, when indie directors make Marvel films or or something like that, you know, you realise that people can't scale things up like someone like Spielberg can or someone like Scorsese can. And it came across, I think, as well in the, like when the trailers for this film first came out and when this film was first started talking about and people were kind of like, well, why are we going to watch it? Oh God, who cares about a Steven Spielberg West Side Story? And then people saw it and then remembered, oh yeah, he can think in this like insane three dimensions of what something looks like. And of, of course, it's going to be good. And people really want to watch a good dance. Yes. It's kind of one of the pillars of human nature. Truly. <laughs> people want to have. And like the experience I had when I first saw the G. Officer Krupke scene where I'm just like, my mouth is just hanging open. And it's like, you know. I can't even critically respond to that kind of thing because it's just delightful. It's just sheer delight. (laughs) I wish to be rendered critically speechless more often for those reasons. (laughs) One thing I did want to mention that I probably should have mentioned in the Mike Feist section. I mean, this whole podcast is Mike Feist section. For me, (laughs) my whole life is the Mike Feist section. But my favourite thing that I ever read about this film and the making of this film is that the bit before they do the song Cool, which is also shot in this kind of beautiful violence versus elegance kind of way um, with a kind of dancing around and Tony's trying to get this gun off riff because he correctly acknowledges that it is Chekhov's gun (laughs) and something bad is going to happen with that. So there's this kind of section before this where Riff goes into a bar to buy a gun and he's kind of sat across from this guy and this guy who's selling him the gun points the gun at him and Riff just 
moves like an inch so that the gun is pointing directly into his forehead. And Mike Feist improvised that. That is a true understanding of what the character is, of like the nihilism of the character. You know, he keeps saying like, oh, I'm born to die young and like all that stuff. And I just think that that for me like epitomizes why the character is so fascinating and why he is like the perfect person to play the character. I mean, you said that Spielberg delayed production to make sure that Mike Feist could be there. (laughs) (laughs) So like, uh, Mike Feist originally auditioned for Tony and thank God that he was given a more interesting character. Yeah. (laughs) Like I said, he was like a total jobbing actor and he was like finishing up a contract on some like regional theatre thing. (laughs) And and he didn't know that, you know, this was going to lead to anything. So uh, Steven Spielberg delayed production for a number of weeks, I believe, to make sure that uh, Mike Feist could be in it because what he understood how good he is and that he is... You've got to have a good riff. You've got to have a good riff because, like you say, it's the best character. It's the most It's yeah. the most important It's character. essentially the opposite of when they cast Emma Watson in the Beauty and the Beast movie musical. <laughs> Where it's like genuinely nothing against Emma Watson as a person who seems actually like a, a very constructive decent, yeah. and nice posh lady. But... She was not good in that film. She's a no. shaky actor in general, but it was like, you have done a musical where the lead can't sing. So, <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't even remember having seen that film. I, I, it does not deserve my memory, but like I had to watch it for review purposes and I was Aww. sitting there like, ah. There's so many things that you've had to watch yeah. for review purposes. But I mean, this movie just seems like it must have been such a fruitful artistic experience, like just yeah. knowing that you're getting to be in something that is so accomplished. Yeah. And I, I feel really good for Rachel Zegler as well, because it's like, yeah. what a fucking what a fucking Cinderella story to be someone who's essentially a high school student and then getting this out of open auditions. Obviously a nightmare in the promo tour, but that prepared her for the nightmare of the next couple of years of promo for Snow White where a bunch yeah. of ridiculous Disney right-wing people are like decided that she's Satan. Honestly. I hope that she has a really good therapist. One really nice too. thing that happened with this film is she fell in love uh, with one of the other actors. Her boyfriend is the guy who plays Chino. It's just so nice. It's so cute because like <laughs> they became pals. Hunger Games film. They did. Go listen to our Hunger Games episode with Stefan. Uh, we both enjoyed that film. Other people were like, it's mid and I was like, it's mid I but good. It. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> Me and Gab saw it together and both. Enjoyed. Yeah. And uh and yeah, he's in that as well, in similarly a kind of secondary role. And apparently they'd like write little love letters to each other on set that they could <gasps> open when they were like because obviously on set you're kind of like placed in different locations and having to sit in the makeup chair for three hours and it's like it's so cute. They were <laughs> just really adorable. She seems like a very perky, nice young woman. <laughs> She's like, whenever the... The perkiest goddamn person in the world. She is perky. Whenever the, not quite the promo tour, but like the kind of awards, the awards promo tour, the awards trail that came after uh, the film came out because it was nominated for a number of Oscars. Rachel Zegler was like the cheerleader for not just West Side Story, but specifically Mike Feist. Me and our mutual friend Dolly, who is in the group chat Mike Feist Nation with me, <laughs> we went to see him in Brokeback Mountain with Lucas Hedges oh, uh, God. in London. And it wasn't very good, but Mike Feist was naked in it and was acting better than anything in that demanded him to. 
Yeah, I just remember the trajectory from when that play was announced with the casting, because like Lucas Hedges obviously also beloved Gen Z slash young millennial character actor. And then it was like, as people were like, oh, it's a it's a musical, you say? Which is already like a puzzling choice for Brokeback Mountain. If anything, I could imagine an opera. But also, kind of one of the key elements of that story is they're not very verbose. Yeah. But then it's like, the review is dodgy. But I'm so happy for you that you got to see Mike Feist yeah. in the flesh. It was really brilliant. And it, so it was me, Dolly, and our other Mike Feist Nation resident, our friend April. Shout out to April. Um, and we all went to see it together and we'd all been radicalized by West Side Story. Yeah, it was like, this doesn't need to be good. It's like, the <laughs> is it not enough to see a beautiful face huge, but is it not enough to see a beautiful face close up from the second row? This is like anyone who's seen Oscar Isaac on stage is like, this was a religious <laughs> experience. I'm very jealous. <laughs> and the thing is that Mike Feist, because he's a theatre actor, was incredible in it. Like, the script was terrible. The... The direction was terrible. The The fact that it was a musical was absolutely baffling. Lucas Hedges, <laughs> Lucas Hedges, bless his heart, I really love and support him, but he cannot act on stage. But Mike Feist is such a good stage actor and he is so gorgeous and he is so magnetic that it's like, somehow you're amazing in this. And there was this bit at the end, sorry, this is really turning into the fan hour, but it was going to happen. There's this bit at the end where like they all came on stage to kind of give the bow and this old guy came on behind Mike Feist and Mike Feist winked at him and we could only see it because we were right in front of him and I was like Can you, I can't imagine that happening to me like if I was that old guy I would just it was like his magnetism is just unreal Beatlemania it is true be, it was true Beatlemania <laughs> like we were we were sat grasping at each other me and Dolly have watched the whole of a terrible Amazon TV show that he's in. He's hardly in anything and we've seen most of the things that he's in, which are mainly terrible. So thank you, Steven Spielberg. It's a personal plea from me. Thank you, Steven Spielberg, for casting him as Riff because now not only have we got this incredible performance in an incredible film, but he's going to be in other more famous things by, like, good directors. I would love to see it if, like, five or ten years down the line, we start to hear about people who are like, I got really into dance because I saw West Side Story. (laughs) And it's like, sure, statistically speaking, that's less likely than the original West Side Story because not very many people saw this by comparison. 78 million at the box office is nothing to sniff at, although monetarily it was a disaster. But, like, (laughs) I just feel like it would be so electrifying to see this as your first... movie musical it's up there with the greats we hadn't had one for so long and after this i mean there's the whole stushy at the moment about how like nothing that is actually a musical is even being advertised a musical yeah like like wonka and the mean girls musical i saw a hilarious tiktok which i like almost was just like is this faked but um (laughs) it was someone who was just a a terrible child who was filming in the cinema and it was they were filming at like the scene where the first song kicks in in mean girls and there was like an audible groan from multiple people in the audience who had got to that point not realising that it was going to have songs. And it's like, well, also, why are you going to see a Mean Girls remake at all? It's a mystifying concept to me in general. I've not watched this. It looks terrible. One comment I did find quite interesting that I saw recently was um, the Regina George actress from the Mean Girls movie musical who also was the stage uh, musical. I can't remember 
what the fuck her name is, but she's the blonde lesbian who hosted SNL and she oh, is hilarious. Oh, Rap. Yeah, Renee yeah. Rap. So she is absolutely fucking incredible in press tours. She is so funny because she's clearly like not adhering to kind of bland PR pre-written stuff and she's very like witty and biting and like horny she's great (laughs) and she's very opinionated and I saw someone who was just like okay well everyone fucking loves Renee Rapp but everyone hates Rachel Zegler and the the racism couldn't be more obvious because like Rachel Zegler is like I would say 50% less controversial in terms of what she actually says than Renee Rapp and her biggest crime as someone who like has covered her like a bunch of times I wrote a bunch of articles about this because there was so much controversy around her it's like she will say something that is like mildly snarky funny and charming she'll talk back to someone or like stand up for herself in a way that one doesn't necessarily expect from like a petite, very feminine looking teenage girl or like 22 year old or whatever. Mm-hmm. And people will goddamn lose their minds. And Honestly. it's like, can you imagine the pressure? Like, Seriously. Just yeah. unbelievable behavior that she manages to inspire by just like existing in the public eye is just like beyond a joke and just terrible stuff. It's so horrible. It makes me feel really sad because she is, yeah, I, ju- I do just think that she seems like a nice, yeah, she seems nice. She'd say stuff on Twitter that was clearly like, you don't understand how famous you are right now. <laughs> but she'll also say stuff in interviews where it would just be like, she's standing up for herself or saying something that's like slightly opinionated. And it's like, yeah. you hear adult man character actors saying the most like bug fuck nightmare political garbage <laughs> on a daily basis. You know, and this any, is what you're coming for. any interview with like Ben Mendelsohn is him like in his <laughs> pants with three cigarettes hanging out his mouth. It's like, no disrespect uh, to Ben Mendelsohn, but it's no like that's the, the leeway you are permitted in certain demographics <laughs> yeah. versus like, oh, uh, terrible. We don't do. need to get into it any further, but it's like, you know, wishing her all the best. I'm sure she's now sitting on a pile of money, yeah. but um, also she is yeah. what, what I was going into before I went into my Brokeback Mountain diversion was that she is the originator of Mike Feist Nation and she is like the true, as Dolly put it, the girl best friend of the gay theatre nerd at every school. <laughs> and she is now doing some Broadway show, not Chicago, but something of that ilk, yeah, you know, yeah. where they where they have yeah. sort of like temporary slots for a big star. And it's like, yeah. unlike a lot of the time where they have a temporary slot where they famously for like Chicago and Cabaret, they'll often slot in someone who maybe isn't what I would describe as qualified. I feel like <laughs> she's qualified. You know? um, I don't know if you've seen the TV show slings and arrows but it always makes me think of slings and arrows no i haven't what's that well this is one of my favorite shows of all time and you would fucking love it this podcast is now going rapidly off the rails (laughs) but um are you familiar with the tv show due south yes okay right so the mountie from due south paul gross oh my god okay i know him from fan fiction yeah canadian icon paul gross he created and starred in shortly after due south a hilarious dark dramedy set at basically it's kind of the equivalent of Stratford-upon-Avon in Canada. So it's like a Shakespeare tourist town where he is a former Shakespearean superstar who had like a nervous breakdown and then gets dragged back to become the new creative director of this failing middle-of-the-road Shakespeare theatre house. And like his love interest is played by his wife playing like a huge bitch mad diva. And then there's just like everyone else is like the people you'd find either working in like a mid-level Shakespearean theatre company or the administrators who are like constantly like, can you please look at this spreadsheet for one minute? And also all the way through 
his secondary character is the ghost of his former creative partner who he hallucinates all the way through because it's Shakespeare. This show is a masterpiece because it's Canadian and only true heads know. But um, this show is a masterpiece and um, I think I was just mentioning it because I was talking about the theatre, but if you ever want to come over (laughs) and watch Slings and Arrows with me, it is absolutely unmatched. Oh my god, please. (laughs) And it goes through eras of man because it's like young love in Romeo and Juliet and then they do um, Macbeth in the second one and then in the third one they do um, King Lear. And the first one, this is why I was thinking of it, it's because it's a parody of when Keanu Reeves did Shakespeare and it was a disaster because he did Shakespeare in the equivalent Canadian small theatre company and so season one is fake Keanu Reeves is one of the main characters as like this movie star who's doing Romeo and then one of the other girls is played by Rachel McAdams. Fuck off! Oh yeah. my god! Right, okay. I mean... It's so good. I'm really excited. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, we need to wrap this one up because I've truly... I've, I've, I've segued from the main over-invested to one of my old over-invested. The fact that we've not done an episode on this, quite frankly, is probably only because I've not been able to get Morgan to watch three oh. seasons of a Canadian Shakespeare dramedy, but... Maybe I'll do People it who know, know. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think it's only fair that you got to do that because I just talked about Mike Feist. Yeah. I was like, he's, he's very good. I agree. <laughs> the month where I saw West Side Story four times in cinemas, like I was in a trance. I was in a, I love this film trance, but I was also in a Mike Feist trance. Like if I look back on my camera roll during that time, like it's just saved pictures of Mike Feist. I mean, if there's anything we learned from this film, it's the transformative power of love, which is what you were experiencing. You were like, I'm going to abandon my daily experience of gang wars, which is obviously what Claire's doing in her daily yeah, life. My normal life. And I'm going to dedicate it to my definitely two-sided, multi-directional love affair with Mike Feist. Yeah, it was basically a meta response. You should see if you can interview him about the bike riders in some capacity. Oh my god, I would fucking... I wouldn't be able to be professional. (laughs) (laughs) But I should. Yes. (laughs) All right, on that note, thank you everyone for listening to and enjoying this episode. I think we may have had some audio issues, there was some mic issues, but hopefully it sounds good. I guess I'll find out when I edit it. Sometimes these things happen and it's the content that's important. Yeah. And next episode is going to be another fucking banger because we are going to be talking about Dune 2. Yeah, Claire and I will be on Dune 2. We will be talking about another one of your favourite men, Timothy Chalamet. Yes. But really, the ensemble cast for this, there is no cast cooler in it's the so industry. It's so stacked. It's so stacked. All of the pictures from all the premieres, I'm eating it up. So cool. All right. We will have show notes on the website. As always, you can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, overinvestedpodcast at Patreon as well, patreon.com forward slash overinvested, where we have kind of regular Patreon-only episodes with Morgan. And uh, you can contact us there. You can hire us for episodes. You can like sponsor an episode. We actually have one coming up relatively soon where uh, Stefan and I are going to be talking about a Australian comedy show that we've never heard of before. And um, I'm very intrigued about that. I love it when we get like a fun little deep cut. I also love it when people ask us to review their favorite enormous A-list blockbuster movies. Like if you want us to watch Tom Cruise's War of the Worlds or something, head us up. Uh, but yeah, anyway, find us on Patreon. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. Recommend us to your friends. Find us on Tumblr at Overinvested Pod. And find me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor and on Blue Sky at Gavia. Claire. Um, you can find me on Letterboxd at Claire Biddles. 
all one word and you can see how many times I've logged West Side Story and you can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Ms. Claire Biddles where I probably be tweeting about Mike Feist again soon <laughs> so you can see my opinions on that and other celebrities that I'm obsessed with all right thanks again for listening everyone and we will see you for Dune 2 in a couple of weeks Bye-bye. Bye bye bye